I'm kicking off to, to today talking about the, the God of power, right? Like if you kind of like look through history, like a lot of Christian theologians, when they talk about idols, usually would say like, you know, money, sex, and power is kind of like the big, the big three. And you guys kind of like look at some of that uh, during the next few weeks. And, and uh, starting with power, honestly, partially because it's probably like the main God in a way, like the main idol, uh, the, the main thing that kind of looks at the core of a lot of things. Um, so I just want to kind of like begin just asking you this question. When you hear the word power, what do you think about? Uh, what's the first image that comes to my mind? I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a big uh, Star Wars geek. So the first thing that comes to my mind is this scene at the end of Revenge of the Sith. That's the only good movie from the prequels. When, like, you know, the emperor goes, like, power, unlimited power. And then, like, the rays come out of his, of his hand. So, like, my, my first association of the word power is actually a negative association, right? Like, there's this famous uh, phrase by Lord Acton that we've all heard, right? Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power, usually for most of us, we see it as this thing that we don't have, that, you know, rich people have, or like politicians have, or like, you know, people higher up above the wrong in our company or organization have, and normally it's like a bad thing, right? Um, my son, Jack, he's 22 months old. He's obsessed right now with lawnmowers. And I'm going somewhere with this, I swear to you, okay? So anyway, he's obsessed with lawnmowers. You can see in this picture, that's my son Jack, that's our backyard, that he has not one, not two, I'm like LeBron, not three, but four toy lawnmowers that he just like parades around the house. The one that he kind of like has his hands on there is one of these toy lawnmowers that like spit out bubbles. So like you can pull the battery and when you're rolling, it's like uh, kicking out bubbles. And, and the batteries wear out. So one day he wants to play with it and, and he's like, doesn't work. So I'm like, yeah, because we need new batteries. Like I need to get you new batteries, buddy. So I go to get new batteries and I'm looking up and what I see, you can really tell in this picture, but there's a cable kind of like running because I told him that, that there was no power and we have this uh, bubble machine. And the bubble machine that has kind of like you plug into the wall and it spits out bubbles. And he went and got the power transfer, 22 months old, like climbs onto this, this chair, uh, pulls out the power transformer, and he's trying to plug in the power transformer on the battery lid of the toy lawnmower, right? At 22 months old, my son Jack understands in, in some, you know, very basic fundamental way in his, his little brain, this idea that power it's kind of like one of the fundamental things of, of, of reality. And you might think, okay, you're, that, that's a reach. You're just using this to show us a cute picture of your kid. That's true. But there is a point there, right? Like Because we think about power normally in negative terms. Power is this evil thing. And we think about power as something that we most of us don't have, right? Like, I'm not powerful. My boss is powerful. My boss's boss is powerful. Politicians are powerful. Super rich people are powerful because we think of power normally kind of like as the capacity to make other people do what we want them to do. But power is actually this much more fundamental basic thing. We need Power is, in a way, what allows humans to carry on civilization. It's a capacity to to create, to live, to make things, a capacity to, you know, make electricity run, the capacity to make a little lawnmower go. Power is kind of like one of these uh, fundamental elements of reality. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because um, when we talk about power, uh, we have to understand that it's not 
necessarily always a bad thing, and we have to see this so that we know how to use it properly, but also when we're abusing it. Uh, Tim Keller has a book kind of like around this topic, and he says this. He says, we think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes, which means that if we are to understand how power can become an idol, we have to, at a most fundamental level, understand what power is and how it works itself into everything that we do and also then how we can stop from worshiping or making more of it than it should be. So with that, would you pray with me? I will step into this time. Uh, Father God, we believe that you are the, the powerful one. You're the almighty God. So step into this conversation about power and what it is, what it isn't, and how to use it and how to not use it. My prayer would be that your spirit would uh, give me wisdom and that your spirit would uh, make us receptive to what you have to say in your word for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Um, there's a story in the book of Daniel, and if you're not familiar with the, with, with the book of Daniel, uh, it, it's this book written about the time that the people of Israel are in exile. The big uh, superpower at the time is the Babylonian Empire, and you know, basically the people of, of Judea have one too many times been disobedient to God, and God basically withdraws his hand of protection. The Babylonian Empire comes in, destroys Jerusalem, and takes the best and brightest people from the city as exiles, as indentured servants, almost like a slave, to Babylon to use them and to have them work in their society. And in, in the midst of this, there's this kid named Daniel who's actually very, very, very smart, very, very bright, and, and God is with him to the point that he ends up working for the king and kind of like rising up in the rungs of power in the Babylonian Empire. Chapter 2, which is what we're going to read, there's this fascinating story, and I'll just read you a couple of, of, of verses and kind of like fill in the rest. This is how it begins, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have finally decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honors. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. This passage is fascinating to me because he sounds like a cartoon supervillain, right? Like, like, like he's like, I have this dream, and you have to, I don't know why I think of Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. I don't know why, but that's how the thing that comes to my mind. He's like, you know, you, I have this dream, and you have to tell me what my dream is, and if not, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to cut you into pieces, I'm going to burn you. He's, like, he, he's the most, literally probably the most powerful person in the world at the time. The Babylonian Empire at that point was the strongest, biggest empire, and he's the king of this empire. And what does he do with his power? He uses it to threaten people, right? He can be as capricious as he wants with his power because he's the most powerful person in the room. 
Now, what's fascinating is how the story continues because what ends up happening is that basically nobody can, you know, guess what he dreamed. And Daniel, at this point, has gained some level of reputation that he has a capacity to interpret dreams. So they bring Daniel, and they're like, listen, he's in a mood, and he wants to kill everybody. So can you please figure something out, right? And he shows up, and he's like, listen, I, I don't have the power to interpret dreams, but God does. So he's like, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to tell you. And, and he prays, and he tells, this is what you dream. And he basically tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar the dream, that like God reveals a dream to him, and he tells him the dream. And then he interprets the dream for him. And you don't necessarily need to know what, what the dream is, except that you know, he, he is kind of like this, 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 this uh, statue with a head of gold that then kind of like gets destroyed and whatnot. But what you want to see. Verse 36. This was a dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So he's reinterpreting this dream. And the beginning of the interpretation of the dream is basically, you are the most powerful person in the world. Guess where that power came from? That's a theme in the Bible. For example, if you think about when Jesus is arrested and is being interrogated by, by Pontius Pilate, Pilate says to Jesus, do you know that I have the power to decide whether you live or you die? And Jesus replies to him and he says, actually, the only reason you have that power is because he was given to you. One of the core ideas of the scripture is that real power, ultimate power, all resides in God and comes from God. And, and I don't think necessarily what Daniel is saying is like, listen, God gave you this power so you could like kill all these people and destroy all these cities and like, you know, threaten the people that work for you. They're going to kill them if they don't get your dream. It's most kind of like this basic idea that God is a source of, of power. A few years ago, I read a book by Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch used to be the uh, executive director of Christianity Today. And he's kind of like this journalist and public intellectual. He has this book about power called Playing God. And, and, and the main kind of like argument of the book is that part of the problem with power is to fundamentally misunderstand what it is. That we tend to think of power only in the negative terms. That we think of power as basically as means of coercion and violence. And when we think about power, what we think is power is a capacity just to exert our will in the world and to make other people do what we want them to do. So we usually either crave power for all the wrong reasons or... Um, we are afraid of power and cannot reject it because we see it as a bad thing. And the argument that he makes, actually, when you look at the Bible, power is kind of like the fundamental gift that God shares with humanity, the capacity to make something of the world. And the place where you see that is actually the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1. So if you are familiar with the story of Genesis, God you know, makes everything, and then at the, on the sixth day, he gets to making humans. And this is what he does. It's Genesis 1, uh, verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule 
over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The fundamental kind of like, uh, some people call this a cultural mandate, the idea that God makes beings in the world. Not only humans, but like if you think about the animals, God makes animals and he gives them the capacity to reproduce, to fill the earth, like make more of themselves. The, the capacity to make is a fundamental gift of, of power. Power is a gift from God. And if you think about it, it's fascinating because the passage in Daniel that we just read echoes back to this. So if you go to uh, verse 36, you know, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all mankind, and there is this, the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that help, head of God. What's going on? Uh, you know, Daniel is kind of like echoing back to Genesis 1. He's basically showing God has given power to humanity. And disconnected from God, disconnected from the source of power, power when it becomes corrupt, it ends up looking like the Babylonian Empire. This is a, this is a, you know, a message that God is giving Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. It's actually a message that God is giving to all of us. This is where power gone awry leads to a guy sitting on a throne thinking that he owns everything and thinking that he can command people to guess his dreams or he is going to kill them. Now, how does this happen? Well, if you go back to the Genesis story, how does the Genesis story go? You know, God puts Adam and Eve in, in the garden. And then he gives them power and dominion over everything, right? And then, if you forward a little bit to Genesis 3, there's this tempter in the story represented by a serpent. And the serpent tells Adam and Eve, well, he says, oh, God told you not to eat from this tree. And then he says, we're going to actually lying to you. He's saying, because if you eat from God knows if you eat from the tree, then he says, you shall be like the reason why we're starting talking about power is because power, in a way, is the fundamental temptation. That we want to have this power and authority that God gave to humanity without having to trust in him. Without having to submit to him. Without having to do what he wants us to do. The whole story is basically a test of trust. I'm giving you all this power and all this authority. And this dominion over the earth but the only way that this works is you are connected to me because I am the source of this power. And what happens in the story is that Adam and Eve, you know, they get judged by God for disobeying and get kicked out of the garden. And the minute that you get kicked out of the garden, the world becomes a very scary place. Because in the garden, all of their needs were provided for them. Everything that, you know, all the fruit that they wanted, all the food that they wanted, they need to be worried about a shelter. They need to be worried about clothing. Like, they can just live Life in, in joy of the abundance that God had given them and exercise power over creation. Now the world becomes a difficult place, a place that's scary, a place that's unpredictable. So what happens? All this power that God has given Adam and Eve kind of like gets turned into itself because now they need to assert themselves over this world that they feel it's trying to kill them. And the reason I'm telling you this because you can trace this basic idea to every single false god and idol that existed in ancient times. Every single idol that's worshipped, the idol, you know, of, of fertility and of rain and of the sun and of, what is this? It's all people 
feeling themselves vulnerable to these forces of nature that they cannot control. So they do what? They make these false idols so they can feel some sense of control over the world that they have. We'll worship you. We'll make offerings to you. Can you protect us? Can you keep us? Can you, you know, make it rain? Can you take care of our crops? It, it's, it's a struggle of humanity trying to exert control over the world. And I'm telling you this because you might, we, we might we're in this room and we might think that we're not idolaters of power, right? It's like, I don't want, you know, I don't want to be president. I don't want to be governor. I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to be a CEO. I want to just kind of like, you know, live my life and retire and, and, and you know, send my kids to college. Why, why are you talking to me about power? Because power is not only the capacity to kind of like, you know, rule over other people. It's the capacity to exert control over our lives. So some of us are trying to climb up the corporate ladder. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, except that a lot of times when that desire becomes disorder, is why? Because we're afraid. We don't want to get fired. We want to make sure that we have enough money to provide for family. These are not necessarily bad things, except that at some point we start making decisions about sometimes how we spend the time with our family, how we use our time with God and serving the world. Sometimes we start making decisions about ethics and the things that we're willing to do or not do or stay silent about or speak about. Sometimes we, it's not necessarily like just the climbing of the corporate ladder. Sometimes it's, it's money and we want to be wealthier. Why? Because we want to make sure that, you know, if the economy tanks again, we're protected. And, and, and sometimes in the pursuit of that, we end up, Use the, the biblical term when they're sacrificing things for the sake of that. And that desire for control is fundamentally a desire for power. You might not think that you want to have power over other people, but you want to have power over your own life. And very easily, that becomes an idol. And very easy, kind of like becomes like the thing that burns in our hearts and that makes us pursue it even at, at the expense of other things. So, so can you see that, 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 that tension in there? Um, at the beginning of the, um, I mean, at the end of the um, um, 19th century, there's this uh, uh, famous philosopher called Frederick Nietzsche. And the posthumous work of Nietzsche is called The Will to Power. And it's basically this book where he makes the argument that this is the way in which the whole world works. That, that basically, uh, you know, everybody, the way the world functions is just kind of like a desire to acquire more power. So he has this quote kind of like summarizes. He says, my idea is that every specific body strives to become master over all space and to extend its force, its will to power, and to thrust back all that resists its extension. But it continually encounters similar efforts on part of other bodies and ends by coming to an arrangement or union with those of them that are sufficiently related to it. Thus, they conspire together for power, and the process goes on. It's a fundamental way. This is how the world works. That everybody, people are not motivated by love. People are not motivated by selflessness. People are motivated by the desire of power, of exerting the will over the world. And you don't get married because of love. You get married because with two incomes, you can make more money than with that income. One income, I have a bigger house and have a better savings account, and a better retirement account. And, you know, 
nations conspire not come together not to extend like the flourishing of the world, but kind of like to assert their power and be protected. The whole world is kind of like seen through that lens. And if you think about it, that's kind of like the secular way in which we see power. And so many of the sorry, so many of the current um, tensions that we have in culture and society kind of like come from that. That we start seeing power as this terrible, evil thing, and well, the solution then is to like take power away from everything, right? Except that we've also tried that. If you think about it, you know, kind of like the experiments that we've had as civilizations on, you know, socialism and communism, uh, you know, if, if you think about it, it's what? Okay, power is bad because, you know, the uh, capital over, over exerts its power over labor, and you have all these injustices. And then whenever you see what happens, power gets consolidated among a few group of people, and everybody else suffers. So on one side... Nietzsche is right, like this is kind of like what looks like when power becomes evil, when power becomes corrupted, that we become, you know, oppressors of one another. And it's true in the case of nation states and organizations and corporations. And a lot of times it's also true of us, of the decisions that we make about the jobs that we take and the schools that we go and the neighborhoods that we live in, that there is a sense of kind of like protecting ourselves and creating control over our life and the sacrifices that we're willing to make over that. Where the story goes wrong is that we assume that that's all power is, that power is just evil. But if we look at the story since Genesis 1, well, if the solution is not to just kind of like shy away from it, but like to look at power in a different way, to look, because what does God give power to humanity for? It doesn't just give power to humanity for the sake of it. It gives power to humanity for the sake of the flourishing of the world. It's like make something of the world, create things, build things, enjoy life, kind of like populate this earth, fill it. Power is given to humanity for the sake of flourishing. And the question becomes, how do we, use power in that way? How do we stop using power for the wrong reasons? Um, a few, um, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I was doing this series at, at my old church on, on the life of Jesus. And one of the things that we looked at is how, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, the way that he's introduced us is the Messiah. The Messiah is just, uh, you know, a word that means anointed one, right? And if you look at the Old Testament, there's only two types of people that are considered anointed ones. Ones are priests, and the others are kings. So when you think about Jesus as the anointed one, part of what, what, what that imagery is meant to bring in the, in the minds of the Jewish people who are listening to the stories for the first time, is that Jesus is kind of like the ultimate priest king. And, and as I was kind of like studying that, we, we looked at, well, how is Jesus a king? And it's fascinating because what you're going to see is this juxtaposition between two ways of, of being a king in the world. There's a story in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel is the last prophet judge of Israel. So he was the prophet of God who spoke for God, and he was also the, the, the ruler, but he wasn't the ruler, kind of like had a palace or whatever. He was like a normal person, and his only job was to like adjudicate disputes. If you're a libertarian, this is like your dream government system. It's a guy that shuts up, and when there's a problem, he makes a decision and goes away, right? Anyway, that's, that's Samuel. And in the story, the people of Israel can like gather together and they come to Samuel and they're like, Samuel, we want a king like the other nations have because kings in their minds were the ways that nations became powerful. Kings were the, wa the ways that nations acquired armies and kind of like were protected from the, you know, uh, threats from outside. So they asked Samuel, we want to be like the nations, we want to have a king. And this is, and Samuel kind of like gets offended because it's almost like, 
are, are you breaking up with me? Like, what's going on here? So he goes and he prays, and God says, okay, give them a king. Tell them that they can have a king, but tell them what the king is going to do. This is the passage that tells a story. This is First um, Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to start reading on verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. You will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will yourselves become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is a warning of the Bible against the misuse of power. And he seems to be saying, it's hard to trust a man any man with power, right? Like that, that quote that I read of like, you know, uh, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That, that's an argument that Lord Acton is having with a famous bishop over the Spanish Inquisition. And he's basically saying, basically this bishop is saying, listen, like, you know, when the Inquisition happens over other times and, you know, the Pope didn't know any better, so, you know, we just kill a bunch of people. But, you know, we're just trying to catch some witches. Like, well, how can you blame us? And Lord Acton is basically replacing, no, 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 no. You, you don't get to say that just because, because you have authority, because you have power. You actually have a higher threshold of responsibility. And ultimately, we cannot trust people with power because this is what happens. They go crazy with it. And it would seem that God is kind of like saying the same thing. Yeah, make a king, and this is what you're going to get. Like a guy that takes advantage of you. Power corrupts. And then... We see this idea of this new type of king, this, this priest king, this Messiah, this anointed one. And this anointed one has a different way of approaching power. There's this prophecy in the book of Isaiah that points to what the Messiah, the priest king, the anointed one is going to look like. And this is what it says. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. If you go a couple of verses down to verse 10, it says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. This future king that Isaiah is prophesying is not just another king. 
that uses his power for his own benefit and oppresses and takes advantage of others. This king is a servant. Like that, those prophecies in Isaiah are called uh, uh, by biblical scholars the prophecies of the suffering servant. This king that God promises seems to be a king that's willing to suffer, is willing to serve. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, uh, you know, he and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and, uh, you know, this most important city in the Jewish imagination. This was the city of the king. So it's kind of like the symbolism that Jesus is going to the capital, almost like to, like, become the king. It's like Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings, when he's going to, you know, back to Gondor, like it's his idea. And, you know, the disciples now believe that Jesus is going to be the king. And they're kind of like, you know, hey, like, okay, now that you're going to come into power, can we, like, what, what's, you know, like when you work in the campaign for politicians, like, okay, do I get to be, like, chief of staff? Or what's the deal here, right? Like, they kind of, like, want something out of it. So there's this fascinating exchange in the Gospel of Mark. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Like, the God of these people, right? What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. They've been serving this Jesus, and apparently what they want out of that is power. Says Jesus, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or baptize with the baptism in my ba- I'm baptized? And says, we can. And Jesus says, actually, yeah, you're right. That's going to happen to you. But he says, like, ultimately, this is not, you know, decided for me to grant. And, and what ends up happening after that is that all the disciples overhear this and they get into a fight. Because everybody wants to be the second in command to Jesus. They're like, okay, who makes you? Like, I carry his backpack yesterday. Why don't I get to be like the second guy, right? And they're fighting and Jesus kind of like overhears it. And I think of like, you know, a parent hearing, you know, the, 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 their toddlers like fighting. He's like, wait, stop. And then he says this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. This passage gives us this incredible window into the heart of Jesus, into the heart of what true power is and looks like. In the middle of Jesus' disciples vying over power and influence and authority, arguing over who's more important, Jesus stops them in their tracks, and he's like, still don't get it, do you? It's not about you. And at this particular moment, Jesus teaches his disciples a lesson that would completely change their perspective about influence and power on authority. He's basically saying, like, listen, what you're doing right now, vying for power, that, that's how the world thinks about power. Well, how I do it is differently. And we see that ultimately in a story that happens a few uh, you know, scenes later in the story of, of the gospel. So they're going to Jerusalem, and a week later, uh, they're going to be celebrating a meal together for Passover, which is what we've come to know as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And when I read you kind of like a scene from that from the Gospel of John. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. 
and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. For me, this is one of the most tender moments in the life of Jesus. Because Jesus knows that he's going to get arrested very soon. And of all the things he could have done with his disciples, there's this fascinating idea, right? Like the, the verse starts talking about Jesus knows that he has all the power and all the authority. Um, there's this uh, famous preacher from Atlanta, Andy Stanley. He says, Jesus in that moment, you know, he knows that he's the most powerful person in the room. And what does Jesus do when he's the most powerful person in the room? He humbles himself. He does the thing that the servants did. Like, like washing the feet of the guests was, the, was something that the servants did. Not the main person, not the owner of the house, not certainly the king of the universe. And then Jesus is saying, no, this is what power works. And, and then at the end of that scene, he explains it to them. He says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says this, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Go me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have sent you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus, in the moment of, of power, what does he do? He, says he strips himself of that power. To serve. Years later, the Apostle Paul, kind of like reflecting on, on these themes, he says it's fascinating. He says, he says, in, on Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature or in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The power was not used for selfish, selfish reasons. He says, Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature or the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, how Jesus uses his power is for the sake of serving others, for the sake of saving the world. When you hear the, the word Jesus, honestly, not only you, but anybody in the world, when you hear the word Jesus, what's the most common, famous image that you think about? It's Jesus on the cross. Throughout history, the way that art depicts the most powerful being in the universe is with his hands open wide, naked, vulnerable, bleeding to death. Which if you ask me for a second, you find God, that kind of like bad PR, right? Like I want kind of like the, the, the headshot with like in the golden throne and the angels and look at all my power. And yet Jesus has made this his brand. And that's silly unless... That's what power actually looks like. Unless for, for the most powerful being 
in the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who, who was and who is and is to come, the one who's spoken creation into existence, the one who holds galaxies at his fingertips says, you know when I'm the most powerful, when I'm giving myself for the sake of the creatures I made. In other words, you know when I'm the most powerful? When I'm displaying my love. Um, in the book that I mentioned earlier by, by, by Andy Crouch about the, the playing God book, he makes this argument. He says, like, I can prove to you that, that absolute power doesn't always corrupt. And he says, you know how I can prove it to you? Because when is a human being the most vulnerable? When they're born. When they're babies. When is the moment that another human being has the most powerful power over other human beings? When their parents taking care of their babies. The babies are completely at the mercy of our care. I have a 22-month-old, I know what I'm talking about, right? They, for them to make it to the next day, we have to feed them, we have to wash them, we have to change, like we have to do everything for them. We have power over babies. And for the most part, we don't abuse that power. For the most part, we don't become, you know, blind with power and, and, and oppress our children. We love them and we care for them. Why? Because love harnesses our power for their sake. In many ways, we are servants of our children. My, my son, like, I, I don't like having my hands dirty. It's kind of like an, an OCD thing or something. So like whenever, like if I get something in my hands, I'm trying to wa wash them or clean them or whatever. And I guess my son has seen that. So whenever he eats a messy meal, every bite that he takes, he extends his hand to me and wants me to wipe it before he can take the next bite and makes for very long lunches. So don't serve kids like a bagel with cream cheese and mess, okay? And I remember posting one like about this. It's like, I feel like I'm working for a Roman emperor, right? Like he's kind of like extending his hand, clean it. And then he keeps eating, right? I have the power in that relationship. And yet what happens? I am with him as the one who serves. Why am I telling you this? I would argue that perhaps most of us don't necessarily feel like quite powerful people. Maybe we don't have the influence. We don't have the access to, to, to the host of power. But we live in the most powerful nation that history has ever seen, in one of the wealthiest and most influential regions of that nation. Some of you have access to power. Some of you work in the government. I remember last time I was here, um, I, I went uh, backstage, uh, and the band was talking. I don't know who of you were there, but like everybody in the band were kind of like, they all worked in the military because they were talking about some like fitnesses I had to take. And I jokingly said, you guys could take over a, over a small island just with the people that you have in here. And one of the singers says, we could take over a big island with all the people that we have in here, right? Like, like you have power. And, and the question is, how will you use the power you have? And if you use it just for yourself, if you use it just out of fear that you want to control your environment, you don't want to go broke, so you're kind of like trying to make as money as you can, and you're not afraid, you don't want to be fired, so you want to kind of like just sacrifice everything at the altar of success and climb the corporate ladder, you, you will end up in a particular place in your life. You know how the story of Nebuchadnezzar ends? Nebuchadnezzar becomes temporarily insane and ends up living on the fields like an animal as a judgment from God for how he misuses his power. But what if the way in which God is healing the world is through you and the power that he has given you to make this world a more flourishing place? 
And I keep thinking about this scene of Jesus on the Last Supper with his disciples being the most powerful person in the room and humbling himself and taking off his robe and kneeling and washing his feet, the feet of his disciples, and picking up a towel to dry their feet. I'm a Ravens fan, so this makes me physically ill. But what are Steelers fans known for? For me, it's corruption, rowdiness, overall annoyance. But outside of that, they're known for the terrible towel. Anybody you see one of these? Oh, that's a Steelers fan. What if what Jesus is doing that night with his disciples is teaching them a lesson and saying, you guys are going to become the founders of the most influential and powerful religion in the world. And I don't want you to be known for your buildings. I don't want you to be known for the lavish lifestyle of your Leaders, I don't want you to be known for the albums of your worship band. I want you to be known for your towels. I want you to be known for how you serve the people around you. How do we stop power from becoming an idol in our lives? We don't shy away from it. We use it, but we use it for love. We use it for the sake of the people around us. We use it for the flourishing and healing of the world. Let's pray.